Hey y'all, and welcome to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern Spooky, and this week, Disappeared. Ooh. Missing. I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. And we ask that you not disappear on us and show us some love on Facebook, Patreon, and the podcast platform of your choice. Indeed. And if you disappear, please tell us. We'd like to know. Yeah, what happened? So I think many of us, at least in this area, have heard the tale of Orion Williamson. If not the name, you'll know the story. The Selma farmer who vanished while walking across a field in 1854 while his family watched. Yep. I remember hearing about this. And it's one of the most written about tales in Alabama lore. It was so popular, in fact, that famed journalist Ambrose Bierce came to investigate and write about the claims. There's that name again, Ambrose. It's one of those antique sort of names. Disappearances fascinate and terrify us. Mm-hmm. Like when people vanish under mysterious circumstances or completely unknown circumstances, it leaves us unsettled and wondering what happened to them. Indeed. I mean, there's always the tales of, you know, like the Mary Celeste or, you know, one Williamson. of my favorite weird stories, by right? the way, was the Mary Celeste. Actually, in this, you know, reading of what you've written and, you know, some of the stuff. I am suddenly remembered of a guy in the 70s who was like, he was a, a runner of some sort, and his friends were following him in a truck, and he was in front of the truck about 20 feet, and they said he just fell, and they couldn't find him, and no one ever saw him again. That is particularly creepy. Yeah. Like, what happened? Um, you know, Are they alive? Are they dead? Yeah. Was it kidnappers, murderers, aliens, portals to another dimension? Aliens. Yes, I use the finger quotes, by the way. The air quotes, yes. And probably the hardest part is just the lack of closure, not knowing enough or anything at all to know what happened to the missing friend or loved one. Indeed. So this topic of disappearances covers broad territory, including true crime all the way to the paranormal. And we haven't really talked about anything like this too much, so it's about time. I've wanted to cover disappearances for a while and i think kind of like the cryptid catalog this is a thing we can keep coming back to yeah there are a lot of them there are a lot in our neck of woods but there are also a lot now when i was writing my comic book i had studied up on disappearances and stuff like that because i was going to sort of put them in the comic Mm -hmm. you know but i came across one that happened on my birthday oh but it was in it was in Canada, and it was a girl named Madison Scott who was a party, and she just disappeared. Weird. Yeah, so, you know. Did you happen to discover if she was ever found, or what the situation was? No, she, was? they still haven't found her. I'm, I'm a part of her uh, Facebook group. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the first on our list, and most of these are pretty old, so like these, these mm. people would probably be long gone now anyway, but um, they're still interesting stories. Yeah. The first on our list is the disappearance of James W. Boyd. Now, James Boyd was an American Confederate military officer. That's how far back we're going. Yeah. And he bore a curious resemblance to John Wilkes Booth. You you know, the actor. The actor, yes. The actor. The the assassin. Yes, the actor! (laughs) The assassin of uh, Abraham Lincoln. And you might note they have the same initials, though that's probably circumstantial. Boyd was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. (laughs) When does it stop being coincidence and starts being ironic? Right. (laughs) Um, And he lived in Jackson, Tennessee, 
He married Caroline Malone in 1845. They had seven children. Great, 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 great grandmother of Post Malone. Wow. <laughs> Boyd was a captain in the 6th Tennessee Infantry Regiment of Confederate States Army Company F during the American Civil War. Mm. He was captured at Jackson in 1863 and held as a prisoner of war by the Union. And during this time, Boyd's wife, Caroline, Caroline passed away. Not sure why. It's not recorded, but also not too unusual. In December... Especially for the 1800s. Oh, yeah, definitely not. In December of 1864, whilst a prisoner of war, he requested permission to be released so that he could return home to take care of his children, who were motherless. Edwin M. Stanton, the United States Secretary of War, approved Boyd's petition on February 14th, 1865. And Boyd's official whereabouts following his release remain a mystery. So he just kind of was like, hey, you need to let me out, I need to take care of my kids, and then poof, disappeared? Possibly. He'd sent a letter to his oldest son telling him to meet him um, for a trip to Mexico, but Boyd never showed up at the rendezvous and no further contact was ever received from him. Now, the weird thing is, according to a theory put forth by the 1977 book and subsequent film, The Lincoln Conspiracy, Boyd was mistaken for John Wilkes Booth and killed in April of 1865. Wow. The theory adds that the U.S. government was aware of the error but covered it up and thus enabled Booth to escape. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but James L. Swanson um, is a writer counters this claim by stating the survival myth of John Wilkes Booth roaming across the land evokes the traditional fate of the damned of a cursed spirit who can find no rest there is no doubt that Booth was the man who died at Garrett's farm James L. Swanson is an American author and historian famous for his New York Times bestseller Manhunt the 12 day chase for Lincoln's killer Um, and obviously he writes all about John Wilkes Booth yeah Um, There are definitely those who think, for anyone who's even heard of this, that Boyd was used as a booth decoy, kind of by accident, I suppose. So, like what? Sort of like an accidental scapegoat? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it could be. It could not be. But you won't find too much about him. You know, that is... I had thought of writing a whole script about that, but there's just not much. Yeah. So, that was it. Well... So that's the reason he poofed. Like, he didn't just sort of up and disappear. Well, okay, he disappeared, but he didn't, like, leave. He just never made it to his rendezvous, probably because of this. Yeah. So check out the name on number yeah, two. Yeah, see that. Harris Rufus Loggins. Yay. Maybe he's related to you in some fashion. Maybe. So, in February of 1939, 79-year-old Alabama farmer... Harris Rufus Loggins said goodbye. I love this name. Said goodbye to his wife, Dovey Lou. Wow. Does that that sounds pretty southern, doesn't it? Yeah. With whom he also had seven children. I don't know why that seems to be a thing. Having seven children is apparently dangerous. Right. And walking your dog, apparently. <laughs> well, that's not related. <laughs> so he left home. He was just he was walking at 79 years old, to the home of relatives a few miles away. 
I guess being a farmer back in well, the 30s, he also could Also, I was that. about to say 30s. He's 79. He's going to work until the day he dies. Oh, yeah. Or, in this case, the day he disappears. Which was this day. He yeah. was going to visit relatives. Never made it there. According to Robin Sterling in the book The Tales of Old Blount County, Alabama, hundreds of people turned out to search for the missing man. Relatives were distraught and confused, as they would be, and they knew of no reason Loggins would simply leave the family. They had flyers printed at the office of the local newspaper, the Southern Democrat, and distributed them around Compton, and a, re- bleh, a reward was offered, but no trace was ever found. Hmm. Now, in May, several months later, there was a potential lead. Another farmer, A.C. Posey, cute name, stumbled on a human thigh bone, so femur, near his barn. And thinking it could be Loggins, a new search was launched. And this time, arm bones were found in the area, but nothing else. Yeah, but, you know, that... uh... It was only a couple of months later, there'd still be quite a bit of body left. One would think, unless it was, you know, gnawed on by something in the woods. Oh, there'd still be body left. Well, that's true. And, of course, this is 1939. Even if you... Well, even if they are just very dried bones, you could... You know, they couldn't test anything. Yeah. They certainly didn't have DNA. So, it was never determined if they were Loggins or not. And to this day, nobody knows whatever became of him. Wow. It's, it's like, sort of reminds me, like, you know, I know it's a short story, but... Very. It sort of reminds me of that Kenda case to where the woman stumbles on the bones, and they're, like, searching for a killer and everything, and it turns out the bones were there, and they were, like, a hundred years, or hundreds oh, yeah. of years old. Yeah, I think it, that sometimes happens when you think you have, like, a, a cold murder site, and it's like, nope, this is more anthropological, archaeological. Yeah. <laughs> Like, somebody pull out a paleontologist. Like It's like, yes, someone who died, but it was a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, it was a, a native woman, I believe. Oh, yeah, it was found. like a yeah. bunch of kids. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about Homicide Hunter. One of the episodes With was... Joe Kenda, because he is amazing. He is. Um, a few kids were running around on their, like, ATVs, and they found bones. And, yeah, it turned out to be a native person. And, apparently, the Colorado police return the bones to like i guess the closest reservation well yeah but and they're like we think this belongs to you in 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 most cases uh through most tribes i can tell you this right now bones are usually or bodies are usually buried where they fell yeah and um as i understand in their kind of epilogue they said that the bones were buried in an unstated unmarked place yeah so she was returned to her anonymous grave yeah yeah okay so shall we move on to the what looks like the last one yes this one's a little bit longer but not too much it's a little complicated and this one is more true crime okay so like we're pretty sure we know what happened but when are we opposed to convoluted oh absolutely and i don't think either of us are related to these no (laughs) We'll have to see if you're related to Mr. Loggins, uh, Mr. Loggins. I'm going to have to doubt that, but okay. <laughs> oh. So our third disappearance mm-hmm. for this episode, third and fourth, I guess, technically, is that of two sisters. In 1914, Mrs. Nelms, it sounds like some sort of gnome. N-E-L-M-S, Nelms. I don't yeah. think I've ever heard that last <clears throat> name before. Neither had I. 
I, when I was first reading it, I, was, I misread the L as an I and was thinking Nelms. That sounds mm. German, but I don't oh. know what Nelms is. Yeah. But she's in Atlanta. She opened a letter from her daughter, or at least it was uh, postmarked from her daughter, Eloise Nelms Dennis, and was stunned by what was written. Hi, Mom. Just got married. Sorry about the new last name. Love you. <laughs> well, a little worse. It was a confession saying Eloise had murdered her sister Beatrice and that she planned to kill her brother Marshall, who had moved to San Francisco, before killing herself. Um, and this was all recorded on ForgottenStories.net and wow. numerous newspaper accounts of the time. The note was typewritten, but it did have Eloise's signature, and the contents... Well, basically, Mrs. Nelms did what you would do, and that was rushed to the police. Well, yeah. Now, she recognized that the signature didn't look like Eloise's. You yeah. know, and back then, when people hand-wrote everything... The, the signature was definitely a thing. Oh, yeah. They, they would know. Now, Eloise had been divorced about a year ago, or previous, so 1913, in Reno... And she was the mother of a little boy who we don't hear about for the rest of the story. Yeah. Sorry, Mrs. little child who is related to Mrs. Nelms. <laughs> child Dennis, I guess. Yes. Mrs. Nelms suspected her daughter of being in love with her divorce attorney, Victor Ennis. Okay. And he had visited her in Atlanta and professed to be unmarried. Do you want to take a guess about that? Right. After her divorce, Eloise had served as a postmistress at East Point, Georgia. No, I promise. I'm leaving her. We're getting a divorce. <laughs> her sister Beatrice was a successful investor, which is kind of good for the time. That's for, for 1914, yeah. That's impressive. The sisters had been en route to Houston to look at some potential land acquisitions that Beatrice thought might suit her. So Eloise left Atlanta on June 10th, met up with Beatrice on the 13th in New Orleans... Mrs. Nelms had received a telegram on June 14th where they basically said, Hey, Mom, we're here fine. Yeah. Um, and a week later, uh, they got another one, signed E and B, and advising her that they were on the way to Houston. And then there was one last one in June 28th. They really like to communicate, which is good, to tell their mother they were back in New Orleans, but planning on traveling further west. And would she please send a skirt Beatrice particularly liked to the San Antonio Post Office, care of Margaret Mims, who we don't know who that is. No. Mrs. Nelms knew very little else. <laughs> wow. Sorry, I'm, I'm just, I'm suddenly reminded of, a, of a, when outlaws in the 1800s, they would have posts, they would always use... Um, like pseudonyms and stuff like that. Yeah, no doubt. And but what's really funny is just to think it's like you're using sort of fake names to have your mail delivered and stuff like that. So it's like mom's like, who the hell's Margaret? <laughs> <laughs> now Eloise divorced and with that young son, Eloise and Beatrice, they had a brother named Marshall Nelms, and he didn't believe that the letter was from Eloise, and he was deciding he decided he was going to find out what happened to his sisters. Mm -hmm. And this is before, like, he took it to the Bureau of Investigation before there was an FBI, and they just didn't quite have the manpower to deal with yeah. it. I think they tried, but there wasn't much. And the case was splashed across newspapers, was the phrase I read, and people reported seeing the women in Biloxi, Gulfport, Mobile, and San Antonio, but nothing came of the leads. Yeah, he probably took it to a group called the Pinkertons, which I, is the yeah, pre-FBI. Well, I don't know if... 
I'm not sure about the era of the Pinkertons. I know when they started. 1800s, 1899. Are they still around in 1914, though? They were still around in 1911, so I'm assuming they were around in 1914. Well, they did specifically say Bureau of Investigation, but I don't know. I mean, maybe they just shifted names. He took it to the boy. Right. (laughs) B-O-I. Wow. So it was discovered after some inquiries that Victor Ennis, the divorce attorney, and a former assistant district attorney had left the state with his wife and children purportedly for Washington State. Hmm. Innes said he knew nothing of either woman's whereabouts, would be willing to publish in full their correspondence and business dealings, and had never been to Atlanta. This sounds like somebody who just got called. Right? Deny! Deny! Now, further background on information on Innes revealed that he'd been married at least twice before... After a few years of marriage, wife number two discovered that Ennis had neglected to divorce wife number one. Which he's a divorce attorney. You think he would know that? You would. You one would think. <laughs> Ennis left town and took their four-year-old son James with him. So now he's on to wife number three and conducting an affair with, uh, you know, an, an oblivious and trusting divorcee. Of course. Now Atlanta detectives managed to turn up a few leads. Bank records indicated that both Eloise and Beatrice, I keep wanting to say that French, Beatrice, mm. had written checks to Ennis totaling some $10,000 1914. That's a lot of damn money. Eloise had cashed a check in her own name for 1400 And a Mrs. Margaret Mims, who was the postal direction for the skirt, mm-hmm. had arrived in Atlanta in early June representing herself as an aunt to Mr. or aunt to Mr. Ennis, who'd followed a few days later to discuss some Mexican investments with Mrs. Dennis. Like I said, this gets a little convoluted. Yeah. So Nelms, the brother, continued his own investigation and by mid-August had amassed enough evidence to convince the San Antonio authorities to issue an arrest warrant for Ennis and, I guess, wife number three. Yeah. And this is all a very long quote from Marshall Ennis. Eloise and Beatrice left Atlanta on June 12th for San Antonio. They took dinner in New Orleans with some friends, stopped in Houston, and were seen to leave the train in San Antonio and were later seen in company with two others believed to be Mr. and Mrs. Ennis, he told reporters. In the meantime, Ennis, I have learned, rented a cottage in San Antonio. It was discovered that the windows had been nailed down, canvas tacked over them, and two stoves in the home were kept going for four days, although it was the middle of summer. Our theory is that my two sisters were done away with, their bodies cut into pieces, ground with a meat grinder, and burned. Wow. Now, the Ennises could not be charged with murder because at the time that required a body or witnesses who had seen a body, but thanks to Marshall's vigilance... The Ennises were eventually indicted and convicted in Georgia for larceny of trust. What truly happened to the Nelm sisters kind of remains a mystery. Yeah. Though, again, we think they they were in a stove, I guess. So Damn. what do you think of that one? That's, that's kind of messed up. And all I can think about, and this is the gruesome part, is you telling me what it smells like when you come upon a house fire that's already gotten to a hold of people yeah that must have smelled real interesting for the neighbors yeah. so now what's the mo here though i don't understand i think it was investment fraud like it's not in my research it was again not a lot written about it not very beautifully written 
but I think the whole motive was investment fraud, like, you know, the $10,000 and whatnot. Now, why they just killed them rather than continuing to fleece them. Maybe that was all the money they had. I don't know. That's messed up. Yeah, that's part of what made it so kind of confusing and convoluted. It's like, I find it interesting, but we don't know what really, really happened, though I suppose, you know, again, lack of forensics. Well, I mean, hell, DNA didn't... Fingerprinting didn't come around until the late 60s. DNA didn't come around until the mid-80s. And we're talking about the 1980s. Right. So, I mean, if you think about it, forensic forensic science is just in its infancy. It's come a good ways, though. Well, we have things like APHIS now and... CODIS and like those are DNA, yeah, and respectively finger fingerprint databases to where you can just go, oh, here's your fingerprint, and it runs through and it checks all these ping- fingerprints against backgrounds of people. Like that's CODIS, yeah. So I mean, we have these things nowadays, now. but back then they were just like, eh. I mean, the best they could do is circumstantial or any kind of you know any sort of evidence. And yes, it is very true unless there was a body. Or somebody witnessed the crime, they were just like, we can't do anything about it. And it sounds like they really worked hard to make the body disappear. Yeah. Both of them. I do remember a show on Discovery a long time ago, well, a couple years back, and it was all about the chemist who started the notion of forensics. Mm -hmm. Um, And do I remember any of it right now? No, but I found it fascinating that he could find... Like, he started to figure out what chemicals revealed other things, like, I guess, blood traces or whatnot. It was just very, very cool, and I wish I remembered more of it. I mean, now we're on to mitochondrial DNA. Yeah. Which means, like, say, for instance, you had a great-great-grandfather that committed a crime, and they find his DNA on a body that's 200 years old. They can come to you, use your DNA to identify him, and subsequently... You know, kind of, I guess, posthumously (laughs) convict him of murder. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, nowadays, it's just, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier than they did. 1800s? Oh, there's a dead body. What was he killed by? He was shot. That's what we're right on his epitaph. That's all we know. (laughs) Yeah, that's all we know. Like, I suddenly now have, I'm now thinking, imagine if Spike somehow, your son got arrested for the carjacking or whatever that your dad did. Right? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, things have changed a lot, especially when it comes to crimes. Oh yeah. So. Have you ever thought about if you were as smart as you are today with knowledge and all that we have today, but were transported back to a time pre-fingerprints. Well, what's the, what's the name of the book and TV series? Outlander or whatever it is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the woman from, I guess, what is it? She was, what, 1940s, I 1940s, think? 1940s, who was transported into the 1800s or 1700s or something? Yeah, just imagine. You could get away with anything. Oh, yeah. You could be a superhero or a super criminal. But also, think about this. You go back in that time... You were not inoculated for the diseases and back in that time. That was, con- I think, conveniently not brought up in the book. <laughs> like, you, like, you go up there and somebody sneezes on you, you're probably going to die. That's possible. Because most of the, z- the diseases they had back then are almost gone, thanks to the anti-vaxxers, but they're almost obliterated. Like, yeah, obliterated. They're almost gone. Could you imagine, on the other hand, someone from then coming here and... and oh, just, they would die. They, they, I mean, probably just the air quality would kill them. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, what yeah. is this? <laughs> uh, absolutely. They'd come in and go... <laughs> dead. 
So I don't know quite how we got on that topic. I'll have but, to. But I mean, it's like we're we're you know we're going like the stuff that's happened back in the past. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so there you are. Three yep. or four mysterious disappearances in the South, plus the bonus intro bit. Yeah. And like I said, like the cryptid catalog, I think I'd like to do a few more of these because there's so many. Oh, yeah. And I mean, some of them are just very basic true crime. But, you know, if you ever watch Mr. Ballin, there's like a whole list of all kinds of people who go missing in state parks. We have some of those. Oh, uh, Missing 411. Yes, yes. And for some reason, it happens more often than not in state parks. I guess just because there's such vast space that it could happen in. yeah. Um, there's also, can I remember the name of the person who runs it? No, but there's a podcast I listen to called Simply Disappearances. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that the uh, person who talks on, would you call that a narrator? Mm-hmm. Who runs that podcast um, knows about it kind of firsthand because I think at some point her sister was had disappeared. They eventually figured out what happened to her, but yeah. she talks about the whole uncertainty, the just months and, for some people, years of having no clue. Yeah. So there is a certain amount of sympathy for that. And the idea of, like, the the people, like the one you mentioned and the one I did, who mm-hmm. just literally disappear in front of people. Like, in plain sight. It's like, what happened there? <laughs> you know, glitch like, in the Matrix? Oops. <laughs> oops just gone. Like, like, and I, I've heard a few of those where you could hear them. You could hear them call for help, but you couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Welcome to our do weird world. <laughs> so maybe we'll do some more collections of short ones, and maybe we'll do a couple of long ones yeah. if I can find them. So let us know what you think. Yeah. We'd love to have you comment on Facebook and leave us some review stars on your podcast platform. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we hope you're enjoying your summer and keeping cool. It's getting hot enough here that no one should have any business being outside without a pool around them. Yeah. And join us next week when we do whatever we're going to do then. Also, big shout out to our Patreons. Absolutely. Yep. And for those of us in the U.S., happy 4th. That'll be probably tomorrow of posting. And, um... Hope you're enjoying all over the podcast. I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. And together we have been Southern Southern Fried Spooky. Spooky. Until next week, bye, Bye, y'all. You know, if I ever disappear, just wait. I'll I'll come back. You know this. Depends on who has you. (laughs) Who in their right mind would want to kidnap me? They would pay you to take me back. Come on now. You've read Ransom of Red Chief, haven't you? No. I've got homework for you.